global crisis. Bible prophecy. Health and preparedness. You're just in time. 11th Hour Dispatch. Father in heaven, we pray now and ask for your peace to be upon us. We know that we need truth. We need more of Jesus in our lives. And as we study your word now, we ask for understanding, for clarity, for conviction. And we pray most of all for your Holy Spirit to teach as we consider what it is that you are showing us in Bible prophecy. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to 11th Hour Dispatch. I am your host, Scott Ritzema, and we are continuing our series, Unlock Revelation. And we're going to look at something very, very important in the series of prophetic ideas that John the Revelator in the book of Revelation is presenting. In fact, these issues that we're dealing with in this session are climactic, are central to the message that John is sending in Revelation. And we need this message because we need peace. And what we're going to hear today will bring us peace in our hearts, peace in our relationships. It could even bring peace in society if followed, because we have a whole lot of strife, turmoil, anxiety, broken relationships, even violence in society. God has the answer for this. In fact, 19 books in the New Testament, 19 of the New Testament books, begin with the writer wishing peace to the people whom he's writing to. So this is something that's important to God. So the key question is, what is God's version of peace? It's not just the absence of conflict. It's not just a a treaty that nations sign and cease their, uh, their warfare. No. Psalm 119 Verse 165 says, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Who love the law of the Lord. That's who receives peace. But unfortunately, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 4, describes a world that is lawless. People are lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God, lovers of pleasure They're disobedient to their parents. They're despisers of those who are good. It just goes on and on with this litany. And it says, in the last days, people will be like this. In other words, they will be totally lawless. God says, great peace have those who love thy law. But in our day and age, you're not supposed to say there is such a thing as absolute right and wrong. Morality and traditional values are a thing of the past. Well, now it's do what thou wilt. Do whatever you want to do. You can make your own right and wrong, your own morals, according to your own viewpoint. This is not biblical at all. The book of Revelation and the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3 warn against this, say this is coming in the last days. In Revelation 12, God gives us the antidote to this. He says the last days people are a people who keep the commandments of God in verse 17 of Revelation 12. So this is an emphasis in the book of Revelation on the commandments, a revival of the commandments of God. You see the same thing in Revelation 14. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they which keep the commandments of God 
and have the faith of Jesus. So this is not a group of people who think that they are saved by their works, saved by their commandment keeping. No, they have the faith of Jesus. The Bible teaches that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and that are not of works, that no man may boast, not of yourselves. But this group has the kind of faith of Jesus that works out obedience in their lives. So it says, here is the patience of the saints. This is the believers. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, if it said it two times, that's enough emphasis in itself, right in that climactic couple of chapters in Revelation. In 12 through 14, that's like the climax of Revelation. But at the very end of the book also, in chapter 22, you read the same thing in verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have a right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. This is speaking of those who go to heaven. So three times John says, the commandments matter in the last days. By the way, when something is mentioned three times in the Bible, it's like an exclamation point. When you hear, holy, 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 that's a way of saying God is very, 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 very holy beyond what we can say in just one word. And in the book of Revelation, many things are repeated three times or seven times. When something is repeated seven times, it's an emphasis of, of perfect divine completion. When it's emphasized three times, it's a, it's a point of emphasis. So you see these repeated in the book of Revelation that God's people are about the commandments. Now, I'll bet, knowing the war that began in heaven that we looked at several sessions ago, knowing that Satan wanted to overthrow the authority of God in heaven. He wanted to take the position of God in heaven. He was the father of lies, waging a, a polemic, a war, a disputation, a series of accusations against the king. This is talked about in Revelation 12, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. I'll bet knowing who he is and what his aim was as revealed in these texts, he has a special target upon the law of God. Let's take a look in 2 Thessalonians 2. How do you think the lawless one, how, do, or how the deceiver, how do you think the father of lies feels about God's law? 2 Thessalonians 2 is about his right-hand man, his henchman, the Antichrist, who goes by many different names. He's referred to as the beast in Revelation 13, the little horn in Daniel 7. John also calls him the Antichrist. This is Paul writing. He refers to him by a couple of different names as well. He says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. Let no man deceive you, for that day shall not come except there be a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed the man of sin we're going to study this passage more in more depth later but you just heard the phrase this is a reference to this antichrist figure the man of sin it says the man of sin will be revealed the son of perdition who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called god or that is worshiped so that he as god sitteth in the temple of god showing himself that he is god 
uh, th- well, that sounds an awful lot like Satan's climb in heaven in Isaiah 14 that he wanted to take the position of God. Well, now he's got a man, an entity, an institution, a power on the earth who will do this work and bring Satan the worship that he so desires. Now, reading on in verse 7, it says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. This word iniquity is anomia. That's the Greek word, anomia. Nomia is law, and ah means no. So this is no law. This is lawlessness. For the mystery of lawlessness doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way, and then shall that wicked. The King James calls this Antichrist figure that wicked will be revealed. Capital W, it's, it's a name, naming him wicked. The man of sin, the son of perdition, that wicked. Now, by the way, that the Greek again here where it says that wicked is anamos. Namos being law, ah meaning no. So this is lawless one, the lawless one. The second time he's been referred to. That wicked will be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan. So there he is again with all power and signs and lying wonders. Paul is saying something very, very clear here. This Antichrist power will be a deceiving power, but not just that. He's deceiving about some particular issue that is a point of controversy. And that is the law and the authority of God. He says, I can sit in the position of God and I can show that I am God in the temple of God. But not just that. He is the lawless one, the lawless one, the lawless one. Three times he's referred to by that name. He's he's referred to as the lawless one, the lawless one, and then it says, and him. So a repetition three times referring to this entity, this antichrist, as the lawless one. Do you see how the two sides are lining up? John the Apostle says, commandment keepers, commandment keepers, commandment keepers who have the faith in Jesus. That's how they're saved, but they obey God. And then you've got the Antichrist, who is the lawless one, the lawless one, the lawless one. Daniel 7 verse 25 also talks about this entity, this Antichrist power. He's referred to as the little horn. We'll identify this power in a future session. But Daniel 7 verse 25 says that he shall intend to change times and law. So he actually believes that he can do away with the law of God. Now that's astounding. Even in our shockingly postmodern culture, if you go up to the average traditional older person in America, maybe not with the millennial generation coming up because they've been so propagandized with moral relativism, but if you go up to the average traditional-minded person in America whether they're a churchgoer or not, and you say, hey, you know, what do you think about the Ten Commandments? Is this a pretty reasonable code of moral conduct for a human being? Most people would say, yeah, I don't have a big problem with the Ten Commandments. The enemy does. Satan does. His Antichrist sure does. And our postmodern culture sure wants to do away with anything absolute, but God has laid it down in stone. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. And bow down before them. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, lie. And you shall not covet. These laws are absolute. 
and in Revelation, Jesus is pictured as the judge. It says in Revelation 14 that the hour of his judgment has come. Jesus is pictured as the creator, the king, the coming savior, the lamb, the lion, the high priest, and the judge. Now, if he's the judge, what standard is he judging by? What is the plumb line? What is the measure? In a court of law, there's a constitution, there's a set of laws that have been passed, and those are the standard by which the judge makes his judgments, or the jury. In, in, in this case in heaven, God sits as the judge, and he what will be his basis for judgment? Well, James 2, verse 12 tells us. It says, it admonishes us to speak and to do as those who will be judged. Now, that's an important statement right there, and I'm not even done with the sentence. Live as if you are in the time of judgment. Live as if everything you say and do and all of our thoughts are being evaluated, watched. And of course, God will forgive us, but we don't just walk into this in a cavalier manner. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law. Now, James uses a wonderful phrase for this. It's not some restrictive thing where we now need to have fear and and worry. Is God going to love me because he's this stern judge? No. He says, you will be judged by the law of liberty. That's what God's law is. He's not restrictive. He's giving us immense freedom. We'll be right back after the break. You're listening to 11th Hour Dispatch with author, teacher, and speaker Scott Ritzmer. For more programs and information, visit 11thHourDispatch.com. In 1969, the U.S. Department of Education announced its intention to use the public schools as, quote, a means to achieve important social goals of a national character. Wait a minute, I thought education was about helping children's character and their academic development think again. It's a social engineering experiment. And much more than a mere social agenda, Bob Chase of the NEA stated in 1997 that, quote, education is the modern world's temporal religion. It's time to wake up, to come apart and be separate, saith the Lord. The DVD series is called Schooled, the deliberate agenda to reduce individuality, destroy intelligence, and re-engineer society. In Schooled, You'll hear it straight from the mouths of the founders of modern schooling themselves. They're quite proud of it. Visit 11thHourDispatch.com and use promo code RADIO for a reduced suggested donation rate. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a of men Oh, you rescue the souls of men And we're back. This is 11th Hour Dispatch taking a look at the topic of the law of God, the commandments of God in the prophecies in the last days. Revelation, 2 Thessalonians 3. I want to look also at 1 John 3 verse 4 because this text gives us the New Testament definition of of sin. If you want to know a basic, basic, basic definition of sin, 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is 
the transgression of the law. So for the Christian, for the New Testament Christian, we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves and not of works that no man may boast. It is a free gift. But there still is such a thing as sin. Jesus took our sins at the cross. He's forgiven us of our sins. But if we choose to willfully and rebelliously step outside of God's law, that's called sin. This is something that God wants to heal us of. For they they shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He wants to give us a new heart and a right spirit. He wants to give us a new nature. He wants us to have the mind of Christ. 1 John 2 verse 4 says, He that saith, I know him, meaning he that says, I know God, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now that's a strong statement from the Bible, but God loves us enough to make strong statements to wake us up. If I'm sitting here saying, I know God, I'm a Christian, and I am not keeping his commandments, then I am a liar and the truth is not in me. I mean, that's that's true, right? That would be called hypocrisy. And God's not going to be uncaring enough to just let us live in a state of deceit and deception. He's going to grab us by the shoulders and say, hey, look, if you are willfully and knowingly and rebelliously living against my law, my commandments, and you say and claim to be a Christian, you're living a lie. Now, he doesn't just leave us there because that would just be some sort of terribly condemning and discouraging thing if that's all the Bible said. He looks at the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda and says, do you want to be made well? And the man can't even move. And Jesus heals him. He has immense compassion in our weakness. In our weakness, his strength is made perfect. But John is clear that sin is the transgression of the law and that if we are violating the commandments of God and we claim to know God, and of course we all slip from time to time. This is a an attitude of, I don't need to follow the way of Jesus. Well, then, then, then that's a lie. But here's the encouraging statement from John, 1 John um, 5, verse 3. 1 John 5, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. They're not burdensome. His commandments are not some sort of oppressive thing. When we study the law of God, it kind of gets a bad reputation when people say, well, no, I just want to live however I want to live. That's actually not freedom because then you become a slave to sin. You become a slave to self. You become a slave to impulse and addiction. God gives us the law of liberty. When we obey, we find true freedom. And obedience is not burdensome. It's not grievous. It's something that brings joy. In fact, the psalmist in in Psalm 40 verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God, for your law is within my heart. You see, when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and we love him and we observe his conduct and his principles and his way of self-sacrificing love, his way of obedience to God's law of love. When we know Jesus Christ, he begins writing his law on our heart and mind, and it becomes second nature to us. It becomes our new nature. It becomes something that we want to do, where I delight to do thy will, oh my God. 
And that's the joy of obedience. But many people drive against this. They have philosophies and theologies and ideas that try to tear down the law of God, even within Christianity. I remember uh, hanging out in a group of of, uh, Christian, I guess you could say, people back in college, and they would say things like, grace and faith have, have made void the law, and the New Testament, the law is abolished. And, and that if, you, if you're seeking conformity and transformation into a commandment keeper by the grace and strength of Jesus in your life, then that makes you a legalist. And I was perplexed and puzzled by that, and I thought, that doesn't seem right. So when I studied into the Word of God on this, it reveals very clearly that obedience to Jesus Christ by the grace and strength that he provides because we love him is not Legalism. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we keep his commandments out of love. John in Revelation said, here is the patience of the saints that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So we keep the commandments through faith and motivated by love. This is not legalism to earn God's favor. You can't earn salvation. That's silly. It's a free gift. It's impossible to come into conformity with his law by our own efforts. So how do we understand Statements like this, Romans 3 verse 31 says, do we then make void the law through faith? His answer is God forbid. He says, yea, we establish the law. We don't make void the law of God because we have faith in Jesus Christ. Receiving the free gift of salvation doesn't make us do away with obedience to God's commandments, his 10 commandments. Now this phrase under the law and under grace comes out. People say, well, I'm not under the law, but under grace, so I don't have to observe the law. This analogy really helped me think through this. If you've ever gotten pulled over by a police officer and you're, you're sweating, you're going, oh no, he just walked back to his car. I was speeding. He's about to give me a ticket. I mean, I'm fully under the law here and the penalty of the law is coming my way. But then he comes back and he hands back your license and registration and insurance and says, slow down, you may go free, don't do it again. He has extended you immense grace. You are no longer under the penalty of the law. You're under his grace at this point. Now, when you turn your car back on to drive off again, Are you going to say, well, now the law doesn't apply to me because I have the police officer's grace? No, of course not. You'll probably even more try to conform to the laws because you are so grateful for what he has done. Romans 7 says that the law is holy and just and good, that we ought to delight in the law. And Paul says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. And, and sin is transgression of the law. So Paul says, shall we transgress the law because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. That's clear enough, I think. But he also says in Romans 3 verse 20 something important about the law. Paul says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. So in other words, we understand our sin better when we see The law, because it clarifies what right and wrong is. And we look at the law and we look at ourselves and we say, I don't line up with that. 
my thoughts and my behaviors many times are in contradiction to what God has said. You know, sometimes we look back at those who have failed in their efforts to keep the law because they indeed had a legalistic religion. Israel would be a good example. Romans 9 verses 31 to 32 says, Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. So they've tried. They, they followed after the law of righteousness. They sought to obey, but they didn't attain righteousness. Wherefore, says Paul, why? Why didn't Israel attain to the law of righteousness, even though they followed after the law? Here's the answer. Because they sought it not by faith but as it were by the works of the law. Romans 9, 31 to 32 spells out exactly what legalism is and why it fails. If you are trying to earn salvation, to gain righteousness by the works of the law, it will fail. And it failed in the case of Israel. He lays it out crystal clear. Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to righteousness. Wherefore, why? Because it sought it not by faith but as it were by the works of the law. So let's seek to obey God, not through our own works. Let's seek to obey God through faith, by trusting in his power to will and act in in us according to his good purpose. That means prayer. That means walking with Christ. That means claiming the promises of the Bible. They will give us victory over temptation. Now, all of this talk about the law, we have to clarify something. You go back into the Old Testament, you you might get enthusiastic about this. You go, okay, wow, man, all the way throughout the New Testament, it seems to be saying, it is saying that we are to obey the law of God, that we are to obey the commandments of God. Many, 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 many texts. Sin is the transgression of the law, all the ones that we've seen. So people go back into the Old Testament, they go, all right, well, let's get a lamb out and we're going to start the lamb sacrifices. Let's do the feast days. Let's do all of these ceremonial laws. Paul addressed this in Colossians 2. He says that God has blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. He took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. This is an important text. He's talking about a lot of different things here in the ceremonial law. He says these things were merely a shadow pointing forward to the reality of Christ. The reality that's found in Christ is his sacrificial death on the cross. So we don't sacrifice lambs anymore. What do you need to sacrifice a lamb for? We've got the lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. So the ceremonial laws and the feast days and the new moon celebrations and the rest days that they had embedded within the feast days, they were called Sabbaths. These would fall on a Tuesday or a Friday or a Sunday or various different days. They were fit within the annual calendar of the feast days. The, the don't let anyone judge you in food or in drink. These are meat and drink offerings that were done. These, all of these ceremonial laws, not the Ten Commandments, not thou shalt not kill, not honor your father and mother, not remember the Sabbath day, the seventh day Sabbath day in the commandments. No, these are the ceremonial laws that were merely a shadow. They were a lesson. They were a example of what Christ would be. They were a teaching tool a symbolism pointing forward to Christ. Now that Christ has come, Paul says, 
God has nailed these to the cross. These are the handwriting of ordinances. The ceremonial law was written in a scroll by Moses. The Ten Commandments was written by God in stone. You don't nail Ten Commandments to the cross. Obviously, it's stone. You know, the analogy would not be appropriate there. It wouldn't make any sense. But Paul says the ceremonial law, which was placed beside the ark, is different from the Ten Commandments, which was placed inside the ark. The ceremonial law was nailed to the cross, but the law of God remains. And it's a controversy in the last days. The lawless one is after it. Let's stand for truth. See you next time. To financially support this broadcast, visit 11thHourDispatch.com. Here's Scott Ritzema with another final minute message. If you're discouraged, struggling, stressed, feeling sometimes anxiety, you name it. If, if there's something in your life that's out of sorts right now, your relationships, your relationship with Christ, I suggest try Daniel's diet for 30 days. Vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, whole grains, and water. Fast from all of the processed foods. And that fast, I promise you, if you've been eating junk and animal foods, you will come back and say, I am so glad you challenged me to do that because I feel more energy. I feel more clarity of thought. I feel more positive emotions. I feel like more motivated to exercise. I feel more motivated to read the word of God. Diet really matters, folks. Brought to you by Belt of Truth Ministries.org.